because the thing with Japan is no matter what type of degree you have or knowledge that you have, as long as you don't speak the language, it pretty much it cancels it out. Mm. So I had fewer options, of course, uh, after graduation. Every time I was doing that and I was always failing at the interview level because you already tell them that, oh, I can only speak English. And I was arrogant to say, oh, I can actually speak French and English and Saili and Kikongo and Lingala. And they look at me, they're like, yeah, but no Japanese? <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> I speak six languages. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> so you have that. You're coming with the arrogance of a polyglot. I'm like, speak many languages. I have a master's. I have actually a double master's. And then they're like, actually, you have to be N1 level of Japanese. And I'm like, okay, mm. I'm out. <laughs> so I was always <laughs> missing jobs like that, but uh, I was lucky to find a company that is pretty international as well. Hello, hello! Welcome to Young, Gifted and Abroad, perspectives on studying abroad from past and present students of color. My name is Danielle. And I'm so excited to be able to talk to you today because today I have my friend Ila as the guest. And this is episode 99. And you know it comes after 99, don't you? <laughs> so today, when I am recording this right now and putting this episode out, is June 7th. And my plan is that next week, so not in two weeks, but next week on June 14th, I'll put out the 100th episode and then that Sunday June 19th which is also Juneteenth which is also Young Gifted and Abroad's fourth anniversary and is also Father's Day apparently (laughs) I was way late to realizing that Juneteenth and Father's Day are on the same day this year but anyway on Sunday June 19th I'll be putting out a special anniversary episode celebrating four years of Young Gifted and Abroad and of course 100 episodes of Young Gifted and Abroad as well. So that's what's going to happen provided that all goes according to plan and I would say who my 100th guest is going to be but I don't want to jinx it so (laughs) listen through to the end of the episode for clues but other than that you're just going to have to be surprised so (laughs) look forward to that next week. But right now, we are focusing on Ila. Ila is an environmental scientist from Kinshasa, which is the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And she has been living in Japan for the past five years. She initially moved to Japan to pursue her master's in environmental science at a university in a town called Tsukuba in Ibaraki Prefecture. And she was able to do that thanks to a scholarship she received from the Japan International Cooperation Agency, or JICA. And the specific scholarship that she received is called the JICA ABE Initiative. So that funded her master's degree. And after graduating, she was able to find a job Uh, But you'll hear how difficult that was for her as someone who is multilingual. She speaks six languages, uh, but Japanese is not her strongest one. And so that counted against her, unfortunately. But like I said, she eventually found a job and then decided she wanted to continue on with her PhD. So now she is both working while pursuing her PhD remotely from the same university in Tsukuba that she got her master's from. So we talked about Ila's motivations behind 
pursuing graduate degrees and how she ended up in Japan. Um, it's not a place that was really uh, on her radar very much until she started looking for international graduate school opportunities. And we talked about where her interest in environmental science comes from. Uh, something really fascinating that she told me is that the Congo is known as the second lung of the world because of its forests. Um, but the Congo, as with many other African countries, doesn't have a whole lot of say in these big international organizations that decide environmental policy. So she has lots of ambitions to become one of those decision makers, but also to teach as a professor, to do research, and to also give back the knowledge that she has gained to younger folks back in the Congo. And that's not all of it either. She also is a model and she does content creation on social media and she is a YouTuber. That's actually how I initially found her. I happened to find her videos who knows how long ago and she actually, I mentioned she's multilingual, so she has an English channel called Crazyla and then she has a French channel called Les Rues du Japon which translates to the streets of Japan. Ila is really active, especially on her English channel, Crazy Ila, making videos about herself and her own life, but also taking the time to talk to other people and get their perspectives on life in Japan. So it's really cool. So she does all of that in addition to all of her scientific and academic stuff. Um, in addition, again, to working. She has a professional life as well, so she's up to a lot. But all of it is really fascinating, and I was really excited to talk to her because she is a French speaker, just like me. Although, of course, she's a native speaker. That's one of her first languages. And I also thought I could stand to learn a lot from her because she has this really unique perspective as a Congolese person in Japan. And I felt like I could learn a lot from her as a scientist as well, because I'm not, I don't have a scientific background. So, you know, I felt like there's tons of knowledge that she has and experience that she has that's unique to her that I was really excited to learn from. And hopefully you all will learn a lot from Ila as well. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with my friend, Ila Okin. I appreciate you for agreeing to be a guest on this podcast. I'm really glad to get the chance to talk to you. Uh, as I mentioned previously, I've, I've watched quite a few of your videos. And I don't know, I think you seem like a really interesting person to talk to. So I'm glad that this all worked out and we were able to come together and and, and do this interview. So it should be fun. It, it usually yeah, is fun. It's fun. <laughs> Thank you for having me, by the way. Oh, yes, you're very welcome. Uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, so why don't we start with you introducing yourself a bit, if you don't mind. Okay, so my name is Ila. Uh, I'm from the Democratic Republic of Congo. I was born there in the city of Lubumbashi. Then I moved to Kinshasa when I was about five years old. Mm. I spent pretty much my life there where I did my high school in uh, Notre-Dame d'Afrique, then my university, uh, in the University of Kinshasa, where I did biology, then environmental sciences, 
and then I started working as a teaching assistant and also in anything related to prevention of tropical illnesses in the research department mm. and then I traveled a little bit around and came to Japan for my master's uh, remained here after graduation, worked for a while and then went back for a PhD I also do content creation on Instagram and TikTok uh, pretty much everything related to fashion and life in Japan I'm also a model in, in Japan. I've been doing that for about three years now. Mm. Overall, I am, uh, if I shouldn't be defining myself with all these <laughs> things only, so I would say I am a very passionate person. I'm quite talkative. Sometimes I'm funny. <laughs> and I'm also disciplined and thorough with myself. And I can also be very sensitive. Mm. And that is all for Ila. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like, you know, you're a very well-rounded person. Like, you've got the your your background in science, but then you've also got the creative side of things that you do. And also, like you said, I do find that you actually are quite funny. Like, I think that's part oh, of the appeal. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of, a lot of good things going on with... Um, with you, so that's awesome. I wait. So you said you you have your PhD, or you're currently pursuing a PhD? I'm currently pursuing. I started about oh, it's been it's been nine months or something. Oh my gosh! Wow. Okay, <laughs> and that's is that still within like the environmental sciences? Yes, realm? yes. I stay within, and I want to you know narrow down much more in my in. in everything related to environmental sciences, to life cycle assessment, a little bit of waste management, and everything that is related to policy and environmental uh, issues. Mm. So, yeah, I stayed within, but narrowing down. Okay. Uh, and, I mean, where did your interest in environmental sciences come from? I mean, you've committed so much of your your life and your studies to it at this point. You know, where what got you interested in that field? Mm. Pretty much two things. One is the trend that was going on when I started my university life. Everything in the news was about uh, the ozone depletion. So I got quite interested in that and I was reading a little bit about that. And that like uh, pushed me to, to know more about environmental issues. But also I realized that in international organizations where decisions are being made and all the policies related to which countries are supposed to do what to reduce uh, the CO2 emissions and things like that. Uh, Congo doesn't really have a voice, and uh, it's it's unfortunate because it's uh, the second, um, how to say, uh, lung of the world, because we have uh, 60% of our land is pretty much the equatorial forest, mm. so we should have much more space to to talk about environmental issues and to participate in decision-making, especially in policies. So I thought as a Congolese person, I should be interested in this kind of thing. So first it was a trend, and second it was the, the place of my country in the overall uh, climate change situation. I see. Okay. I didn't know... I mean, I, I don't know a ton about the Congo as it is, but I didn't know, no, like you said, <laughs> about the, the second lung of the world. I had no idea that it... Um, had such an important part in like the um you know environmental landscape mm. of the world yeah but i can i i 
in a sad way, it doesn't surprise me that uh, yeah. Congo and a lot of African countries don't have a voice. I feel mm-hmm. like when I see people, especially like governments of, I guess, I don't know, richer countries talking about mm-hmm. what we need to do for climate change or to control mm-hmm. population growth. It's like, mm-hmm. well, people in Africa should do this. People mm-hmm. in Africa should have less children. People in Africa, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just like... Y'all are the ones out here, like, exactly. <laughs> emitting all of these, exactly. these gases and, exactly. and using up these resources. And then you want to yeah. talk about what Africans need to do. You're not even exactly. asking Africans, um, you know, what's what. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty frustrating. Yeah, I can imagine. But yeah, I think that's really admirable that you, yeah. you saw that and you were like, you know, I want to do something about it. I want to be a part of the conversation in, in any way that I can. And, you know, here you are, <laughs> you know, digging deep into environmental sciences. That's really cool. Thank you very much. And so, you know, like you said, you ended up in Japan for your mm. master's. How how did that happen and why did you decide to go to Japan? Oh, man, it's not it's not like I literally decided to go to Japan because... Coming from a Congolese perspective, we don't really think of Japan as a destination in the first place because hmm. our country is a French-speaking country and because of the uh, historical uh, background, we tend to look up to Europe or even America sometimes when we, you have the chance to speak English. Hmm. So Eastern Asia and overall Asia is not really somewhere we think of going. So I didn't have Japan in my mind at all. And I didn't know much about it. I just knew about the electronics because most of the cars and electronics we use in my country come from Japan. So that's how I knew about Japan Mm. and a little bit of animes and things like that. So I didn't really like choose Japan per se, but I wanted to to travel uh, to study abroad because I I figured that my knowledge uh, back home we we tend to think back home that the knowledge we're getting is not sufficient or maybe it's not sophisticated enough. So I was thinking because I want to have uh, a political or academic-ish type of future in environmental sciences, I would like to see how the other countries are doing or how it works in other countries. So get a diversified knowledge kind of. Hmm. And then I started applying for scholarships here and there in France, in Belgium usually. And full Fulbright, it's American, I think, and mm-hmm. uh, one scholarship in the UK. And every time I was failing for very interesting reasons, they would tell me things like, uh, you didn't fill the form well, or you didn't participate to this or that. So it was um, reasons that were frustrating because you look at all the knowledge that you have accumulated and you go through so many different type of tests, mm. uh, mathematical type of things, a language type of things. And then at the end of the day, you spend time and money in it and they tell you, you didn't feel phone well. So it's like, it was mm. very frustrating. Then I saw a scholarship that was uh, a Japanese cooperation with my country. And it was only for people who have a certain uh, level of, uh, how to say, education. So I applied for the scholarship without even thinking, what's Japan? What, what can I do in Japan? What, what's, what's his life in Japan like? <laughs> so <laughs> I applied for that one. And it was a crazy, another crazy, uh, roller coaster of tests. You have a language test, then we have a mathematical test, and then you have an interview, then another interview, then you have documents to fill. 
it took about a year and a half of selection process and mm. then out of about the 1,500 candidates, only three of us got the scholarship and then I found myself in the country of the rising sun. <laughs> wow. A year and a half long process. Yeah. And out of 1,500 people, mm. they selected three and you yeah. were one of the three selected. That's intense. <laughs> it's very intense. It's, ah, yeah, it's very intense. I'm not a think about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so that's how you ended up going to Japan. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it was a relief to finally get an acceptance so you could, you know, go abroad for school and get mm. that um, international perspective like you were hoping for. Yeah, um, true. But, I mean, how did you, I mean, overall, how did you feel about moving to Japan? I don't know if you had been to Asia before at that point or no, no, what your emotions were at the time. Not at all. Uh, it was my first time to to uh, go to Asia, and actually I had to Google things about Japan just because I knew so little about it. Mm. I felt like my life was going upside down because I'm going in a country I don't speak the language, I don't I don't know anything, I don't know anyone mm. there, and I'm leaving my family uh, for long term for the first time, so it was very uh, scary. I was frightened to the level I got fever for about three days before I, oh, I no. leave Congo. So at the same time, I was ex- excited because it was like um, my dream come true. But I didn't feel it at the time of the acceptance because when you dream about something, but then you go through so many struggles in the process, you even forget what was your goal. Yeah. You're just like, oh, yeah, this is it. Now let me go. You, you get more practical and you forget about all that. Mm-hmm. So I was very less thinking about the overall picture of oh my god i'm i'm going to do my masters in japan it was more of okay tomorrow i have to buy a ticket okay when is the check-in time okay i need to see this auntie and my grandma before leaving or or things like that you know Mm -hmm. small little details (laughs) yeah i mean how did your family feel about you you know getting the scholarship and moving away how did they feel about that it was definitely a mixed feeling. Most of them are happy because they thought, oh, that's actually what she wanted since uh, very like uh, many years. But at some point, they were like, it's, it's also very far. Most mm. of them just think, I'm in China at this point. And they say, it's very far. We don't know anyone there. If something happens to you, we don't know who to call. So it's scary at the same time to let me go, especially because I'm a woman and in my country. Mm. It's things, it's, it's not really usual to let go of your, the female sibling, like go abroad by herself to go live in some uh, very far country. Mm. So they were scared and happy at the same time. I see. I mean, that makes sense, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's um, especially like, like you said, it's a woman moving uh, abroad yeah. alone and yeah. all that. Um, yeah, safety as well. They don't know. You know, my country compared to Japan is not exactly the safest country in the world. So they have that idea, thinking mm-hmm. everywhere is pretty much the same. So they were worried about my safety as well. Yeah. Do you feel pretty safe in Japan now that you've been there uh... for a while? How to say, compared to my experience in other countries when it comes to thieves, when it comes to murders, I, I feel safer, but I wouldn't say I feel completely safe, like 100%. I was think, sorry, I was thinking it's pretty safe until, uh, lately. It's been about two months. I think I was followed by a creepy dude. Oh, that's my goodness. When I realized, yeah. 
this is actually very common. When I checked on on, pla- on social platforms and asked other friends, they say, "Oh, this is pretty common actually in in Japan." That's when I realized, "Oh, it's safe. It's safer, but it's not the safest country." I'd. Mm. Dang, that that's awful. Yeah, it was awful. I was really frightened. I was just shaking <laughs> the whole time. I didn't know what to do, and I went to hide in the combine. Oh, oh no! You had to hide. That's so sad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I had to create a diversion for the guy who was following me because it was pretty dark. And I said, okay, let me get into this convenience and just like at least look at the face of the person following me and see what is his move. Mm-hmm. So I got real fast in the convenience store and I was like, I tried to buy some things and see what he's doing. And he literally went behind me and also was trying to fake to buy things. And then that's when, when he went to a certain corner and I couldn't see him and he couldn't see me. And that's when I got off. The, the convenience store and started running <laughs> back home. Dang, that is... Uh, I, <laughs> it's, it's not funny. Scary, but you know how Japan can be, you know, it can be really helpless if something happened. Yeah, especially if it's like, uh, like if you're, if you're a woman and a man is like mm. following you or giving you un- unwanted attention or, yeah. you, you know, I, I've unfortunately seen so many stories where it's like if, mm. if someone sexually harasses you or mm-hmm, like or mm-hmm. like touches you or does something mm-hmm. inappropriate and you're a woman it's just kind of mm-hmm. like well sucks to suck like you can't yep, do yep, anything definitely. about it i discovered a lot about about that actually about sexual harassment in japan after that and then i was doing some research and it's it's pretty scary mm. dang well i mean mm. i'm glad you're safe i'm really sorry that you experienced that like yeah, no one should. No one should have to be dealing with that. Why are you? You just trying to go home. You gotta exactly. spend extra time trying to hide exactly. in a co- convenience store. Exactly. <laughs> trying to think, trying to like calculate your moves and all. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but like I said, like I said, I'm glad that you're safe. I'm glad that you got that Thank that you guy off me. your tail. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, you moved when you moved to Japan. I think it was. Is it? Tsukuba? Is that where you were? Yeah, University? Tsukuba. Tsukuba University. Yeah. University. Is that also where you're pursuing your PhD? Is that the same university or somewhere different? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So I went back to the same university. Okay. So, I mean, did you select this university when you were applying for the scholarship or how did you decide on going to Tsukuba? Like, ah, and where did that happen in the process? I see. So in the process, you select, you rather select the department you're going for because, um, Japanese university don't have, uh, all the departments available, actually, all the discipline that you can think of. And mm. only few of them have environmental sciences and environmental sciences taught in English. I only have very few options, one in, in Mie prefecture, very far from the capital and the closest to the capital was Tukuba University. Mm. So, uh, it was my top, uh, Top two, I think. So you select universities uh, like that, like three universities, uh, according to your department, and then the scholarship, uh, contact the professors available that are related to your research, Hmm. and then these professors um, do an interview with you, and the one who is willing to supervise you, regardless of the university belongs to, you go with them. Hmm. Okay. You said this, the Tsukuba is, clo- is the one that's closest to um, Tokyo out of the options mm. that you had. About how far is it, would you say? About an hour an hour train 
to Akihabara, Akihabara Station. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, do you make that commute a lot? Because I, when I see your videos, a lot of it is in like you know places where a lot of is happening. So, are you commuting? Ah, no, back no, and no. I'm not living there anymore. So, for the PhD, because everything is uh, remote for like classes. Ah, okay. We have very few classes, like two classes. I've already finished them, and the rest of the time you have to do your research by yourself. So. You have to present results to the professor, but you don't have to be physically there. Mm. So I'm basically never at the uni at all. Oh, okay. Mm. Were you, but you were there, like, for your master's, were you yeah, more so based around Tsukuba? Yeah, okay. I was living there, and I was at the uni every every single day. I see. Okay. Mm. So, you know, when you moved, how was it when, you know, when you arrived and... You're adjusting to everything, getting started mm. with your studies, also getting acquainted with living in Japan. How mm. how was that? It how was, was it adjusting tough. to everything? It was pretty tough because I, I didn't expect uh, so few people to be able to speak English because I came with zero knowledge of Japanese language and Japanese people really don't care about English or anything like that. So when I came, the first thing that I realized that every single thing around me was written in kanji, katakana, hiragana. I knew nothing about these mm. bamboos things. I was like, what is this type of writing? Mm-hmm. And then every single person I'm communicating with is pretty much speaking Japanese or nothing else. And I speak French and English and I'm coming there very proud saying I'm bilingual. I can survive this. But that wasn't enough. So the first a uh, hard time for me was the language. Even though my department was in English, the rest of the, the of my life pretty much was uh, in Japanese. And then I, the first thing I noticed when I came to the country is how clean it is and how calm. Like It's very silent as a country. Mm. And uh, we went to live in um, pretty much a dorm of my, my scholarship before... Uh, letting us go to our respective universities. We were trained about Japanese cultures and what to expect from Japanese people, Japanese culture and all that Mm -hmm. for about three weeks. And that's where I met most of my closest friends, so other African students from different countries. And uh, yeah, pretty much selected who is going to my university and made acquaintances. That was the easiest part. The food was the most difficult part for me because it's the total opposite of what we eat in Congo in terms of spices, in terms of texture, mm. uh, the way they present it, the way they do it, everything is around. Uh, what I felt was like everything was a soup or some sort of spaghetti or rice. <laughs> so every time I would eat, I would say, but this is not spicy. This is not spicy. Where are the spices? <laughs> and then my friends would be like, yeah, this is Japanese food pretty much. And I tried to to get used to it. But until now, I really, really struggle. Like when I want to eat, uh, as I say, quote unquote, real food, I don't think going to a Japanese restaurant. So to me, it's um, very uh, soupy, watered down. I always try to add salt and tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> it's very funny for them. So yeah, I got pretty much used to udon and, and soba and things like that. But the rest is like, uh, nah, for snacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? The social life also was the hardest part, of course, because of the language. So I did the mistake of staying in my foreign bubble because I found my comfortable friends from Tunisia, from Sudan, from Ethiopia. So I was comfortable with them. I was discovering actually 
uh, African culture, how diverse African culture is from different countries. And I was mm-hmm. very excited about that. So I stayed in that comfort zone. Therefore, I didn't really immerse myself in the Japanese culture per se, like making friends with Japanese people. Mm-hmm. And that sort of affected my overall uh, life in Japan. And the other hard part of the social life, of course, was the isolation and the the loneliness. Mm. It was pretty much my first time to experiment. Uh, I would say that was a depression. I didn't get diagnosed, but I think I got depressed in the first six months. I couldn't see people. Uh, My friends were also doing their own process because they were also separated from their families, so it was hard for them as well. So it was my first time to live by myself in a huge apartment. I think that was quite a huge apartment, two bedrooms. Mm. And it was my first time to experiment, uh, to experience uh, uh, earthquakes. And that was the most awful part because I am a person who, my personality, I need, I need structure and I need something mm-hmm. to stand on. So I, I trust the ground. <laughs> you feel me? Oh, I'm not, yeah. I trust the ground. So unconsciously, I need like a solid ground. But I was living in an apartment that was, uh, first of all, it was wood. And apartments in Japan, you know how it goes. It's very earthquake proof, but it's very light material. Mm. You can hear your neighbors. You can hear your steps. And when there's an earthquake, I was just panicking. Like, <sighs> so yeah, this was the... Mm. The hard part of me trying to adjust to Japan. Yeah. There were also many positive things, of course. The the safety, the fact that I could pretty much do anything in my creative side. uh, That was was amazing. And getting to know a new culture and how things work in a completely different world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it sort of opens your minds to different realities and opportunities. Mm, yeah, for sure, for sure. So, as you said, your your program, your studies were in English, mm. and you had, um, you know, like a three week orientation to introduce mm. you to like what to expect or what, you know, how things are done in Japan. But mm. you still had a lot to to learn and to get used That's to. True. Um, That's true. I mean, did you, as far as the <laughs> in terms of the, you know, like the the bland or the the maybe disappointing options as far as uh, mm. Japanese food goes. <laughs> Were you mm. able to find any like Congolese food or African other African mm. cuisines that made up the difference? No, not really. Oh, actually, my my friends from North Africa were the one really like cooking their their meals, and they were luckily finding spices in specific restaurants. But when it comes to Congolese, mm. I think I couldn't find any Congolese restaurant. Until now, I hear there's one in Yokohama. Mm. But the rest are more Nigerian restaurants in Tokyo and yeah, Roppongi area. Ethiopian food. So I, I had some sort of access to African food, but still it wasn't Congolese one. It was North African mm-hmm. and Eastern Africa mostly. I see. Okay. Yeah, and I that's an interesting point that you said about with earthquakes. It's like you take for granted having solid ground under yeah. your feet and then it starts shaking. And I've never experienced an earthquake, so I, I only know oh, from what people you. have said. 
But um, <laughs> lucky you. Yeah, I hear that's something you have to prepare for a lot when you're yeah. in Japan is dealing with Definitely. earthquakes and such. Yeah, and I'm sure that's like an interesting, also an interesting thing to experience as like no, it's an not. environmental. <laughs> no, oh, I mean, I mean from an, an environmental science standpoint, like you're living. No. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> you should see me doing earthquake. I really don't know. I, I forget all the safety measures oh. that I took time to study. I just don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. Yeah, I can. Oh, in awful. that case, yeah, more definitely more terrifying than. Um, Interesting. Yeah. That's yeah, the wrong definitely. choice of words. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, <laughs> as far as your, you know, your master's program goes, I, I, I'm not. I don't have a science background. I'm not like a science-oriented person, so I'm not sure how it goes when you're pursuing a science degree. But can you describe like? On an average day, what it was like for you at mm. at Tsukuba when you were mm. doing your masters? Mm. So for um, my masters, I noticed also a big difference with my studies in Congo. It was more of a, I would say, debate based type of things because the department was so international and people from so many different countries that when it came to agreeing on on a few points that weren't uh, rocket science, it mm. was mostly debates, like even professors would uh, kind of tease us to go to debate and talk about different uh, environmental issues in the world and what our point of view are. Sometimes we will go through um, case, court cases about environmental pollutions. And, you know, Japan is one of the, the countries where the biggest environmental disasters started with the mercury poisoning in Minamata and things like that. Mm. So they, they are also in a, such a big position when it comes to environmental uh, regulations, you know, Kyoto Protocol and such and such. So mm. it was much more debate-based uh, than, rather than uh, rocket science applications. And I also felt there was a more repetition of what I learned back home in Congo. And uh, the average day was uh, waking up uh, about 7 a.m., going to Japanese class, Japanese language learning class for about an hour, then 8 a.m., go to the first class, uh, have a debate with a group of friends and exchange ideas, and then the professor will come and give also his point of view, and then we'll base on papers and stuff like that. And when it's a class that is more uh, science-based, things like remote sensing, we'll talk more about case studies of uh, remote sensing in environmental science. We'll also talk about things like uh, uh, what uh, developing countries should do mm. with or for a developed country when it comes to environmental decisions and responsibility. So the overall master's for me was... So brainstorming about everything that's happening in the world from different perspectives, from different educational backgrounds and different countries. So it was really, really amazing to to think, oh my God, I'm so wrong on so many things and oh my God, I'm so right on so many things. So it was, yeah. it was very interesting because um, being in an international classroom is such a blessing, basically. Mm. And then because I was kind of... I thought I could do it all. I took another uh, sort of certificate program. So it was basically like doing two masters at the same time. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, no, no, no. I, I really shouldn't have done that. And the program was about nature conservation. So there it was more nature-based than the policy and like other type of science. 
And I really loved that part because it was related to international organizations directly. So we'd have lecturers from different uh, biggest UN organizations, you know, IUCN, UNEP, and all these, like, World Bank people. Mm-hmm. They would come and give us lecture of practical things on field, what's really happening and how you can help in an international level. So that program in nature conservation, I, I think I loved it more. And we also had so many field study where you literally uh, be in nature, study nature on field. Yeah, so that's how it, it was like my master's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, yeah, so that's really great. You had so much, um, you were learning so much that was of of great interest to you. I was, I think I saw one of your videos you were talking, you mentioned how a lot of, or some of it was stuff like rehashing things you had already learned uh, when mm. you were in the Congo. So I was like, oh man, was it, was it boring for her if she already mm. like knows a lot of this stuff? But <laughs> um, it's good to know that wasn't necessarily the case. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> a lot. I think it's one of the rare universities in Japan with a big international what is it, studentship. Is that a word? <laughs> so many people are from... I think there are fewer Japanese, actually, than ah. international students, yeah. I have to reread the statistic, but yeah, they are, they actually uh, brag a lot about that, that it's one of the rare universities in Japan with people from everywhere in the world. I see. Okay. Yeah, so it's like you're not um, necessarily the odd one out, you know, like... No. <laughs> no, not at all. I was definitely the only Congolese, I think. Yeah, I was the only Congolese. Oh, okay. Definitely. Only Congolese, but not the only mm. international student. No, not gotcha. at all. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I guess it's different now that you're going back for your PhD and it's mostly remote. Mm. Besides doing it remotely, is it really different from when you were doing your master's? Or is it like a similar kind of... Like the way it's structured, is it similar mm. to when you were doing your master's? So not, not at all. So uh, first it's narrowed down to, in terms of research... So your topic of research is very narrowed down to what we make you specialist in, mm-hmm. in your field. So you work only in one topic, you do a steady research, and basically you have a supervisor that is much more closer to your endeavors than during the master's. Mm-hmm. And you also have more freedom in your research, meaning you can uh, pretty much think of um, applying principle or try to redefine principle and prove if the principle works or doesn't work so there's much more room for freedom novelty mm. and uh, you your topic is narrowed down to what will make you specialist in x uh, x or y field and the way it works is also you don't necessarily have class like a teacher in front of you uh, telling you things mm. and which is a good and a bad thing at the same time <laughs> Because I was so used to a framework where there's someone telling me, okay, there's A, B, C, just go and apply it. Mm. And then on PhD, you find yourself, okay, there's A, you find B and find C and try to find a way to apply it. Mm. <laughs> so it's pretty, um, yeah, it's pretty challenging. Definitely more than, than masters. And yeah, there's less class. I, I only had two classes and the rest is practical and internships here and there and you proving your research and you, the basic principles you're trying to to define to a large audience of professors mm-hmm. being criticized and being beaten up <laughs> about 
what you're talking about. And every single world has to be referenced and stuff like that. So it's much more, it's tougher, I would say. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess it's one of those things that, I don't know, for for me, it seems like one, going for a PhD especially seems like one of those things you you should probably do if, like, if that's something you really want because mm. it's so hard. <laughs> like, mm. it's, it's so demanding. <laughs> <laughs> it's demanding. That's the word. I think anybody can do a PhD. It's just the, the, it's, uh, the time you have. It mm-hmm. also costs a lot of money and not everybody can afford it. And it also kind of brings you to a certain pathway that is a very, I would say, hmm, you either stay in academic or you are in research or you become a professor or you work in international organization and things like that. So I think things, at least in my idea right now, you are in, in a certain square when you do a PhD and that also can um, sort of uh, give you a certain tag that I necessarily don't agree with, mm. that you are an intellectual that thinks in a box and applies principles and mm. articles and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's also where I have a problem with... Uh, it's sometimes conflictual with my creative side. So. Mm. <laughs> I hear that. Yeah, it's definitely... Anybody can do it, but it's definitely not for, for everyone, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, like, what was your motivation? You were talking about, you know, narrowing down your specializations Mm. and, you know, I I mean, what was your motivation in pursuing a PhD? Do you have, like, some goal that you're moving toward? That's a good question. Actually, from my, when I started university, it was like a no-brainer to me. I just had this path in mind that Mm. I would do my master's and my PhD because I'm coming from a family of professors, basically. Mm. So I think in my father's head, actually, I have a, a little brother that wasn't, is not an academic at all, is uh, much more in the creative side, is a designer. And being the only boy of the family, my father tried to put a lot of pressure on him mm. to be like like him, right? So... Mm-hmm. I have uh, my my big sister, she did law, so she studied law, so she's a lawyer. She didn't want to pursue all these academic things that my father would like us to do. Then when my little brother was stubborn enough and said no to all these things, he he, he was much more creative and didn't give a shit basically about (laughs) academia and things like that. Then Mm -hmm. I felt my father was looking up to me at some point so it was the pressure from Mm. him and also for me thinking oh well this is the only pathway that i have i'm living in congo anyway so it's not like i have the choice i am one of the lucky people who could afford an education and we don't really have rooms there is no really uh, infrastructure to to be able to uh, give a job or, or an easier life to people who didn't go to universities or things mm. like that. So when you have the chance to to go to the top of the <laughs> of the overall struggle, you do it. Mm-hmm. So I was lucky enough, and I felt like okay, well, my father wants me to do it, and I think it's cool, and I think I'm lucky to do it. So why not? Yeah. So yeah, uh, it was a no-brainer at some point, and that, and that was at, until I came to Japan. Then I was thinking, oh well, I have other options. Yeah. And then it became more conflictual. Yeah. Okay. And and do you have like 
I mean, it's okay if you don't, but is there, like, some overall goal that you have in mind and, Hmm. like, that you pursuing your PhD is a part of? Like, it'll it'll get you closer to that goal? Definitely. So, my goal was to get into one of the uh, UN organizations as a speaker for my country. Mm. Pretty hard when your country is not one of the contributors, and these are the things that I learned afterwards. (laughs) <laughs> that it's not because you like it that you'll get in. Mm. It's also where you're coming from plays a huge role as well. And I'm coming from, uh, well, Congo. And it's a beautiful country, but we have our our issues. So my mm. goal, one of my goals is to get into these decision makers for, for the world. And also I'd like to stay in academia and try to give back what I learned to younger people, younger generation in my country. Mm. And yeah, stay in research, and also I like to eventually publish much more article than I can, <laughs> can mm. do right now, and then yeah, also explore more my creative side. I think, mm. Mm. yeah, overall. Wow, that's a lot, but that's that's, uh, that's amazing that you have <laughs> so many um, ambitions and and you. that you want to. I guess, you know, further your own path in this field, but also, like, give back, you know, through your work mm-hmm. as well. That's yeah, awesome. We have to. We have to. There are way too many selfish uh, mindsets. But mm. then when you go around the world, you realize uh, people people need what you have, no mm. matter how small you think it is. And it's always a good thing to try to give back as much as you can. Mm. I definitely agree. Oh, sorry, maybe this is like <laughs> sidebar, but you said that the DRC is not in the UN or doesn't isn't a speaker at the UN. Is that what you said? Mm, so depending on which uh, which of the organizations of the UN, because the UN has many other sub-ish organizations that work specifically in environmental issues or environmental mm. policies or nature conservations. Okay. So in some of them, Congo is not a major contributor. Which means when they want someone from, uh, when there are positions and there are people that are equally uh, qualified, they shall or they they are supposed to give the chance to people who have a major how to say a major voice mm. kinda in in the organizations. So Congo is uh, not exactly popular in uh, most of the the UN sub organizations. I see. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that is, yeah, that is set back to what you were saying earlier about the Congo and I guess mm. other African countries being left out of environmental decision yeah. making conversations. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. So, you know, so, you know, you're doing all that. You already got your master's at Tsukuba and you decided mm. to go back to school. So you're doing that again. Um, wait, how long, about how long is your, um, I'm assuming at Tsukuba it was like two years, maybe? Is that how long? Oh, yeah, long it was two years. And then two your years P- and two months. Okay, and your PhD, how long is that supposed to be, do you think? So, formally, it's two years and a half, but if you're, you want to extend, you, you can extend, mm. like in case you haven't finished your, your research. And if you finish early, you can also ask for an earlier graduation. And you said it's been, like, less than a year, so you still have yeah. a ways to go. Okay. Uh, yeah, but but it's hard because I'm working and studying at the same time, so I'm not sure about my schedule. I'm trying to be really hard on my, my on myself to have like a tougher, separated schedule like, yeah. for work and for for studies. But it's 
it's pretty hard, so I'm not sure if I'm gonna be able to make it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's that's real though. I was gonna ask you about that. Like, how do you? How? Because you you started working like you got your master's and then you started working mm-hmm. full time. I assume. Yes. How do you balance being back in school again with you know Ooh. working? Oh my god, <laughs> uh, that made me question my life. <laughs> <laughs> So the mistake that I did, a mistake-ish that I did is after my graduation, after my master's, I was working full-time in Japan. So I wasn't studying at all. And I got into the rhythm, basically, of the, you know, the professional life, the industry and all of that. And then because I had in the back of my mind that I want to do um, a PhD, I was working harder to save money to pay for my PhD because mm. uh, I wouldn't have a scholarship then. But then it got so sweet to just have your salary <laughs> <laughs> and not think about your supervisor or some articles that you need to write or mm-hmm. publish and things like that. So going back to school and balancing it with work, again, it's just hard because now I reduced the, the work time so I'm just working three days per week and then the rest of the time I'm supposed to work on on my thesis and things like that it's pretty mm-hmm. hard because you you think well do I really need a PhD <laughs> like you start you start checking wait will my salary be better with a PhD will my life be better you start questioning a lot of these these choices that you've made it's oh, it's actually hard but when in good days, I realized that I like that because mm. working full time wasn't really, uh, it's not really a good thing per se. It's mm. necessary, but it's overrated as well. <laughs> and so it was, it was so conflictual in me thinking, uh, well, working is sweet, professional life and na na presentations and getting your salary and paying the bills. It's nice, mm-hmm. but then you miss student life at some point. But when you go to school again, you're like, oh, why am I doing this to <laughs> <with> myself? <laughs> and when you have bad days at work, you think, oh, well, I like my PhD better. What am I doing here? Yeah. I don't feel the impact. Because in your PhD, you think I have a specific research and I'm going to do a, some impact because I'm providing data or results. And at work, I'm working for a bigger engine and I'm just a small part of this engine. So I don't really feel my personal impact. So there's this conflict that I think also makes the beauty of of life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So like parts of working full time are kind of a drag, but then also parts of being a student are also a drag. So it's like finding that wherever, wherever you're, exactly, the balance or the, the happy medium, finding, finding what in the midst of all that makes it worth yeah. it for you that's like definitely challenge but i escape living. in my in my in my creativity that's where i escape all of that yeah and i'm like yeah no work no studies let me let me work on some content <laughs> mm, for sure yeah i definitely wanted to ask you about the your creative side and you know, the creative work you do i but i did have a question um how was it finding like a full-time job in japan mm. when you're not like super fluent you know was that difficult oh it's pretty hard because the thing with japan is no matter what type of degree you have or knowledge that you have as long as you don't speak the language it pretty much it cancels it out Hmm. so when you have knowledge in it because they're pretty big in it ais and things like that so Hmm. 
you fine. You can speak English only and work with like a, a tech type of company. But when you don't, and you are a person in like a, I'd say rocket science ish, you need to speak the language because you pretty much not don't have the same value in the market mm. when you don't speak Japanese, even if you have a PhD. And it's it's crazy to me because that was really frustrating. Mm. So I had fewer options, of course, uh, after graduation, fewer options than people who uh, could speak Japanese fluently or at least have a conversational level, which I didn't have. Mm. So it was it was uh, harder. Uh, and I started like job hunting a year prior my graduation, which is pretty normal in Japan. It's the culture. You start job hunting uh, a year before you graduate. And Every time I was doing that and I was always failing at the interview level because you already tell them that, oh, I can only speak English. And I was arrogant to say, oh, I can actually speak French and English and Saili and Kikongo and Lingala. And they look at me, they're like, yeah, but no Japanese? <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> I speak six languages. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Sorry, I'm pretty much shouting in your ears. <laughs> no, it's all good. <laughs> so you have that you're coming with the arrogance of a polyglot and like speak many languages I have a master's I have actually a double master's and then they're like actually you have to be N1 level of Japanese and I'm like okay mm. I'm out <laughs> so I was always missing jobs like that but uh, I was lucky to find a company that is pretty international as well Okay, yeah, so you found you found a place for you, you know. Yeah. <laughs> After all that struggle and, you know. Yeah. Uh, I can relate to that, though. You feel like you have so much going for you and then uh, it's just not enough because you don't have yeah, this one thing. Yeah. Even though, I mean, you know, you're in Japan, maybe it makes sense, like, you should know Japanese. But it's, yeah. I can understand the frustration of, like, <laughs> having having one thing discredit all the other stuff that you have yeah. to offer. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was really frustrating, but also my bad because I really didn't care much about learning Japanese. Mm. My environment didn't allow me, and I was also in the bubble thinking, well, right. they speak English pretty much. Looking at all my professors, I'm pretty much out there in the professional world. It's going to be easy for me because everybody speaks English. Yeah. Then after graduation, that when the, that's when the reality slapped me on the face. Yeah. And people were like, nah, 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 it doesn't work like that. You speak Japanese or you don't really worth anything unless you want to teach English. And that's another layer of problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Have you been able to come out of that foreigner bubble? Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. After leaving to Cuba, actually, that's when I was pushing myself to make like a, a new network or a broader network with locals. And it's been it's been great. Mm. Oh, it's good to hear. It's good to hear. And as you've mentioned er earlier, you know, you, you know, you're very multifaceted person. And also, like you said, it, it helps balance the, the frustrations of work and Definitely. school to have that creative outlet. So, I mean, you do modeling, you do YouTube, you do stuff on social media. Of all the creative stuff that you're doing right now, what, what would you say came first? Like, what did you start doing first? Mm, definitely modeling. Hmm. And that's because I just wanted a hobby. I was like, well, uh, let me see what I can do in Japan. And modeling came first. I had suggestions from friends. And back then, I really didn't have Instagram or anything like that. I didn't have social media. I didn't. I didn't really understand what what the hype is about. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> I was just okay. Let me start modeling. Then I, I went to find some agencies. Then Instagram came after, and YouTube came after Instagram, and TikTok is the last. Hmm. Okay. So it's like gradually you like kept adding on to mm. what you were doing, and they all kind of mm. maybe they're slightly different, but they all kind of fit together, and also like yeah, build up they upon each other. Actually, definitely, they came as. Each has a consequence of the other, actually, in my mm. experience. And it was mostly pushed by my closest friends. They were like, oh, you actually can do this. You actually can do it. They were seeing things Aww. in me that I didn't see before because I was such in a, I would say, academic bubble. Yeah. <laughs> I, I couldn't really see myself doing anything else that is like, um, that doesn't require you to go s- study some old rules from some old books or something mm. <laughs> so my friends were looking at me saying hey you look like a model i was like what <laughs> and they were like, oh, go do modeling and i come and i talk to them and uh, they laugh at my jokes they're like oh you should actually have an instagram this is pretty funny mm. and then when i get an instagram and i'm talking to them and i'm making some uh, uh tiny vlogs on my story they're like hey you should have a youtube channel <laughs> So I was just going gradually, and my closest friend like you, 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 you're really good at this and, and stuff. So I follow their advices, and here we are. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that is that's so wonderful that you had that encouragement from your friends to oh, do these they, things. They're amazing. Um, <laughs> it's so nice when, like you said, people see something in you that maybe you mm-hmm. don't see in yourself or you just haven't mm-hmm. noticed yet. Yeah, that that's mm-hmm. fantastic. Um, <laughs> What would you say is, like, the most rewarding part of, like, the creative stuff that you do? Hmm. It's uh, the satisfaction that you're doing something you like. Hmm. It's amazing, the brain. So you just create something from scratch that you don't really think what... You don't really imagine what people could think of it. And then you put it out there. And people pretty much reward you hmm. in a way that, oh, they, they, they like it. They like the way you did it. And, uh, and you think, wow, I could, I could never imagine something from my brain could make people laugh or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's the self-satisfaction of, hey, people like it. And hey, I'm actually liking what I'm doing. So yeah, that's what I get from content creation (laughs) Mm, i feel that i feel that i know you have you have two channels you have a french channel and an english Mm. channel Mm. um and i noticed you know you kind of have a mixture because i guess the the english channel is the one that's like maybe has a bigger following Mm. um and i noticed that you know you have videos that are just about like yourself like you're talking about your own experiences but then you Mm. also at some point started branching off and like having roundtable discussions or going out in the street and interviewing people Mm. and stuff. Mm. So, uh, you know, what made you want to make your channel more than just about yourself? You know, why did you decide Mm. to do more topical videos involving other people? Mm, It was pretty much my bias because I'm uh, in my channel, at least for now, I'm presenting live in Japan as a foreigner. And I was, I was always thinking, yeah, but I am, I am still, Ila from Congo, not fluent in Japan, uh, in Japanese, living in Japan. So mm. I think my perspective would most probably be biased. So I was thinking, yeah, it's good to say what I think about Japan and share my experience. But 
What about what other people think? What about other people's experience? How are they living life in Japan? And what is actually going in Japanese people's mind? How do they think about、uh, foreigners or life in Japan itself?、Hmm. So I wanted to, it was basically for myself at some point,、mm-hmm. just to know what other people go through and stuff. And yeah, basically from there I said, yeah, let me, let me not just talk about my biased point of view,、mm-hmm. but try to see what other people think as well. I see. That makes sense. And, um, <laughs> it, I, I think I remember, I, I wish I remembered how I first like found your、mm-hmm. channel. I don't remember,、mm-hmm. but I know when I would see some of your videos like that when you were interviewing other people, it was like、mm-hmm. very much like, Oh, is she like a TV presenter? Like, I didn't know you were a student <laughs> at first. You know, when I just f- saw the first few videos, I was like, oh, this is like, is this what she does? You know? <laughs> I don't know if you have any aspirations of like doing television or anything like that.、Um, Actually, no. My friends back home in Congo were telling me that、uh, in university. They were saying, hey,、uh, Ila, you, are, you were so well spoken. You should do TV. Wasn't interested in that at all.、Mm. But then I found myself in interviews. Instead of making it a chat, naturally I would turn into journalist mood. Also, I, I, I don't really, I, sometimes when I try to rewatch my own video, I can't really get around that. I'm like, why am I being like Oprah or something? What, what are you trying to do? <laughs> I'm sitting there on, on a chair and then asking people questions. I usually want it to be more of a chat and exchange, but Because I think for the sake of structure and organization,、mm-hmm. I sort of try to prepare questions and come with them, and then it ends up being, a, um, yeah, an interview basically,、mm-hmm. <laughs> not a chat. Yeah. I guess <laughs> I didn't know it comes out that way. So thank you for your perspective. <laughs> no problem. Um, like maybe that's something that, that just comes out. Maybe you can't、mm-hmm. help it if you're a naturally curious person. Cause、yeah. I, I definitely like, I've, Heard it occasionally, the same、mm. thing about like me doing this show, like having、mm. some sort of journalistic approach. And I'm, I'm nobody's <laughs> journalist, you know, but <laughs> it comes naturally.、Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I can feel that. Like I try to keep things casual while、mm. still having like a semi. Uh, structured conversation or a conversation、mm-hmm. that goes somewhere, you know, but I can, I, I feel you. Sometimes it's just, I don't know. Plus, you don't want to、mm-hmm. feel like you're, I mean, I don't want to feel like I'm wasting people's time. So I try to sound like、True. slightly professional and then it just、mm-hmm. ends up having, instead of having a casual conversation, like you、exactly. said, you almost kind of sound like you're trying to be Oprah or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm so not. <laughs> But no, that's definitely, I, if that were something you wanted to do, like TV presenting、mm-hmm. or something like that, I feel like you could totally、mm-hmm. do it. Like you're already showing、oh. that you have like, <laughs> really? like, cause、okay. that's before I like looked more into what you, who you were in your videos. That's the、mm-hmm. vibe I got. I was like, Oh, is she like,、oh, wow. is she one of those people who's on like cool Japan or something? And she's、oh, just、wow. doing it on her own. <laughs> like that's pretty, you know, interesting. Anyway, <laughs> um, Oh, and I wanted to ask you in terms of,、mm-hmm. uh, you know, your French and English channels, are they like the same approach or do you have different content based on the、no. language that you're making videos in? So that's also something I'm still trying to brainstorm about. So、um, my French channel was basically created because I'm coming from a francophone country and I got introduced to a bigger、uh, francophone channel. Um, so I had a collaboration with a bigger YouTuber who is、uh, French, 
which introduced me to an, a French francophone audience. So these people came to my English channel and were, you know, francophone bashing on my English channel <laughs> saying we don't we don't understand why you're speaking English in your uh, your videos. You francophone make a channel in French and stuff. Mm. So I was like, oh, okay, let me. That actually makes sense. So I created that other channel in French, and until now, I never know if I have to upload the same kind of content. The thing that is clear in my mind is that my first audience on my English channel is American, and followed by Japanese. And usually, the content that they tend to more um, that resonates with them usually it's like debate on some social issues mm. or things like that. But on the francophone side, it's more of a, they want to see the beauty of Japan because there is a an interesting love relationship between France itself and Japan. So what they want mm. to see is much more of a adoration and worship of Japan. Mm. And my English channel, rather, they want to see critical thinking and uh, discussing about social issues. So I, I already have that structure in mind and I know what type of content would probably work better for my French channel. Mm. But uh, yeah, until now, the content is not exactly... Uh, different, but in the future it will be completely uh, uh, different. Okay, yeah. So there's like um, with a with a French speaking channel, maybe it's more about like the aesthetics of Japan, like you said, mm. and like the, the adoration and and all that. Mm. Whereas like vlog style, yeah, things like that. And and, and then the English one is. <laughs> I don't know why I thought yeah. like when you said that they like to. <laughs> hear more debate i was uh, immediately mm. my mind went to thinking oh yeah of course americans just want to watch people fighting <laughs> of course it's exactly. not it's not that, only americans watching your videos but that's that was my first thought when you said that <laughs> <laughs> not that people fight that's in your so videos true. but you know that is so true <laughs> <laughs> that's what i get though that's what i really get from the american side like even on my tiktok and instagram when you post a reel about something that is uh, controversial mm-hmm. issue about Japan. That's where you see all the Americans <laughs> in the conversation. I'm like, you guys really like fighting. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And I, I don't know how how like how much other English speaking people fit into like you know the people who view your videos and all that. But it mm. just yeah, I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I'm sure some of it is like yeah, they want to hear. Nuance conversation and, and, and think critically, but also it's, I don't know, something about watching people fight. I feel like that's something that Americans, or, you know, just arguing for the sake of arguing. I feel like that's something Americans like to do. I, I, honestly, that's what I think. <laughs> oh, goodness. So, um, has it been a hassle? No, I don't want to say hassle because, mm-hmm. you know, TikTok is like yeah, a lot of people are, you know, launching careers and doing all this amazing mm-hmm. stuff on there. But uh, especially with the pandemic, it's like for some people, it seemed like an app that mm-hmm. like they had to join because it's like otherwise they might be missing out on like mm-hmm. what's happening. So I don't know if that's how you felt adding TikTok into the mix since that's like the when you're talking about adding on you know, going from modeling to Instagram and then, mm. or adding Instagram and then YouTube and then mm. tacking TikTok onto there as well. Has that been like a, a burden having to mm. add another app? And 
another way of doing content to the mix or do you feel like it's just another outlet for your creativity it was and i mean i'm a millennial so at the beginning it was really cringy for me like i would like to watch people like that but doing it myself like doing some trendy dance here and there i'm like i'm too old for this shit so every time i was looking at tiktok i'm like do i really need this do i really need this app but then, uh, like, after the trend of all the big content creator, uh, 2020, 2021, when everyone was locked down and mm-hmm. watch more, consume more social media, that's when I realized, oh, people are actually making money out of this. People are having careers out of this. So mm-hmm. I have to stop thinking about it as just, uh, um, how to say, a cringy tool where everybody's dancing on some <laughs> non-understandable mm-hmm. <laughs> lyrics. But I have to think about it as... Um, you know, as a, an opportunity to grow an audience. Mm-hmm. So that's when I, I, I got TikTok. It was, yeah, it's still to me a plus app. Right now, Instagram is a little bit dying when it comes to photos because I joined Instagram at first for photos as I was, uh, 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 as I am doing modeling. Mm-hmm. So taking photos was also something that I really liked, whether, regardless of being a model. So I joined Instagram for also like the aesthetic and the photo part. But right now, the algorithm of photos on Instagram is pretty much dying and mm-hmm. it's, it's copying everything from TikTok. So this is where I'm feeling, oh yeah. yeah, I did the right thing to, to join TikTok. And it has actually helped me to, to grow an audience and to convert it on, on YouTube as well. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's still a plus up, but it's been nice. I see. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I forgot to ask about when, um, mm. with the modeling, you know, mm. I've seen, you know, there are quite a few foreign models in Japan, mm. but I don't know how it is for you booking gigs and mm. all that stuff. Like, how how is finding your way in mm. the modeling industry, I guess, in Japan? You know, how has that been for you? Um, so it's been, I would say it's not, not much uh, easy because I'm a black woman and mm. uh, I'm a dark-skinned black woman and... When you look at the commercials in Japan and the representation, you don't really see black people a lot, especially from like local brands, local Japanese brands. When you see a black person represented, it's Zara and all these international other brands. So it's been hard because Japanese went from the trend of representing uh, white women to the trend of representing half Japanese. Hmm. So... When you are a dark-skinned woman, you are you have less op- job opportunities just because they don't know where to place you. You mm. are not there. You don't fit in the audience, right? They also think about that. So sometimes they you they represent like whitening lotions and things that I have nothing to do with. So there's no way to to get a job. Hmm. When I get jobs, it's usually about representing stuff in the 80s where you have to have a big afros to do some jazz moves and hmm. things like that. Rarely it's something pretty modern or when the clients really want to push into diversity. So it's been compared, I will say, to other uh, race, if I can say that. Mm-hmm. It's been harder to, to book jobs. And I'm pretty sure that's the case in the whole world overall, the case for like black women. Mm. But I would say I haven't really put that 
in my mind because I'm doing it for fun. So it's not something that I think about much. There are many people in Japan that are doing it as their career, as their first thing that they want to, you know, to do in life. But for me, because it's a hobby, I see the struggle, but I'm like, ah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of helps, like you said, that you're you're in it, but it's not your main, I guess, bread and butter, so to speak. Like, yeah. maybe if if that were the the thing that you had to rely on, I can see mm. you feeling more frustrated about Definitely. how things are like stacked against you or how you get like, um, yeah. shut out of certain, certain, um, opportunities there. But, mm. um, yeah, you kind of can have the balance, like you said, where you see what it is, but it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not, it doesn't like ruin everything for you because it's not mm, all that yeah. you have going on. So. Yeah, that's cool. I, I hope that all the with the modeling and the <laughs> and the content creation and the videos, I hope that continues to be, you know, rewarding for you and that you mm-hmm. are able to continue putting your ideas out there. Because um, so far, you know, it's been really entertaining to see what you what you put out there. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, for sure. You said, well, I don't know if you said in this conversation, I know you said in a previous video that you, you've been in Japan for like, has it been five years now? Yeah, five years. So you arrived in like 2017? Yes. Yeah. So, mm. you know, it's been a while. You're in, you're still working. You're still, and you're <laughs> going back for your PhD <laughs> program and that, yeah. um, might take, you know, slightly longer because uh, again, of your other obligations. So mm. I guess I'm wondering how long do you see yourself Staying in Japan. I know you said oh you have your God. you have your other goals with trying <laughs> oh to like get God. into the inter- UN or you know decision making uh, spaces yeah. within international organizations. But as far as you know, as far as Japan goes, how long do you see yourself <laughs> staying there? <laughs> it's a very difficult question because I I couldn't see myself staying in Japan for five years in the first place. Like mm. I was thinking that I would end up in Europe because my my extended family is there. We don't really say extended family in Congo, we just say family. <laughs> so my family is there in, in France, in Belgium, some of them in London. So when I go there, like for vacation, they always say, hey, you should you should come here, you should like move here and stuff like that. So I was seeing myself much more in Europe because it would make sense professionally. I speak English and French, however, so luckily a, a higher education. So I, will, I would easily find a better paying job uh, in Europe or something like that. But I found myself in Japan again. I don't, I don't know. I always say I have a sentimental relationship with Japan rather than a rational one because mm. I think it's where I learn things about myself. It's where I, I dated for the first time. It's where I, oh. I live, uh, uh, in Japan by myself for the first time. So I learn a lot of things here, uh, about myself for the first time. So I feel like there is that in my mind saying how well it's sort of the country where I became an adult in a, in a way. And that's the only thing keeping me here. But I would, I wouldn't say I'm seeing myself, uh, living here for five more years because it wouldn't be fair to all the effort my family has been putting in mm. my education and everything they've sacrificed for me to have the best job in the world. And then I put myself in a country where I have 
fewer opportunity because of um, a very, I would say, a very small parameter, which is the language <laughs> that cancels every <laughs> other thing in my life. <laughs> so it wouldn't be fair to to stay here for longer than like three years mm. because I'm just reducing my chance of having a a better professional life and, you know, live a better life or things like that. Mm-hmm. And even if I started thoroughly learning the language by now, you minimum need at least two years to reach N2, N1, mm. a level where you are acceptable in the professional world. So, of course, I'm learning it here and there, but I'm learning it for the proud, the pride of being in Japan and I know the language, but mm-hmm. I know it's harder to to reach a certain acceptable level. So, yeah, I see myself in probably Europe and uh, back and forth in, uh, come on, the uh, back and forth Congo, mm-hmm. Europe, Congo, Europe, Japan, maybe for vacation, things like that. Mm-hmm. I see myself uh, starting a family. Mm, probably, most probably, there's a high probability of being a professor. Mm-hmm. I'm saying it because... <laughs> like this because I don't think it's very cool <laughs> it's not very it's it's pretty lame but yeah I created that path so I'm I'm following it there's that but yeah. I don't see it as my main job I see I, I don't think I'm the person who can have one job in life <laughs> it doesn't sound like it you know <laughs> Um, from what, everything you're doing now, but I don't know. I, for being a professor, sounds cool to me. And um, oh, okay. you still have all the other stuff that you can do that you want to do with the, yeah. you know, modeling and mm. and everything. Um, mm. So yeah, it doesn't see. It feels like you you just have too many, not too many, but like mm. there's so many facets to you that having just one job probably wouldn't do the trick that's for you. True. That's true. I think it's also a very big problem of narrowing down yeah. what I want. You feel like, you know when you have all opportunities and you, you don't know which one to choose? Mm, <laughs> I think yes. Yeah. much my situation. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Um, <laughs> but okay, so, you know, maybe Japan maybe is not for you in the long term, but mm. maybe still got a few more years to go. Yeah, um, definitely. Is, oh my gosh, I forgot to ask about Tsukuba. Like, I'd heard of the university, but I forgot to ask, like, what... Because that um, Tsukuba, where is that? That's, is that it's Ibaraki? Japan, Ibaraki. Actually. Okay, yeah, so I mean... <laughs> I should have asked this way in the beginning, but, like, what is Tsukuba mm. like? Because I, I know nothing about it, like, that area. Mm. It's mid-countryside. I wouldn't say it's exactly the, your typical Japanese countryside because there are a lot of activities and also many, many foreigners, mm. especially in the university area. There is the, sorry, there is the JAXA, which is the Japanese NASA. So there is a center of JAXA in, in Tsukuba, which makes it, it's very sciencey mm. as a city from what I hear. And uh, there is definitely not compared to like Tokyo. You don't have many things to do on the weekend. You go to a typical bar. You play billiard and things like that. There's, mm. There are many parks. Uh, the main attraction to me is that uh, JAXA Center where there's a museum and things like that. 
But yeah, it's pretty boring when you you're in vacation. So we tend to <laughs> lean to Akihabara every every year and there. Usually once every two weeks for me, mm-hmm. because the train it's a special train from Tsukuba to Akihabara and it's pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. So we take it about once every two weeks with my friends to go around uh, Akihabara and stuff like that. So it's a countryside of Japan, but it's not not your typical countryside with like large rice fields. You have mm-hmm. a sort of some activities. Mount Tsukuba is a very uh, known mountain. So people, when they, sometimes when they train to climb Fuji, they try Mount Tsukuba, they try Takao-san. So I see many uh, tourists in spring climbing uh, okay. Mount Tsukuba. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, so people come from <laughs> the mountains. And then also there's the science part of it as well. Yeah, the science uh, yeah. part of it. Wow, I really <laughs> meant to ask that at the beginning when we were talking about, um, you know, your master's program and all that. But okay. Uh, you know, you talked about where you could see yourself moving to in the future, but just as far as just traveling or visiting new places, is there anywhere else in the world? Is there anything, anywhere like specific in the world that you would like to visit? In the future? Oh, uh, just today I was complaining in my story that I want to go to Norway. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to visit Norway because I'm such a diehard fan of old Viking stories and really? uh, pretty much all, all the warrior stories, like even the summarize. I like like old warrior stuff. Ah, so okay. <laughs> I want to visit Norway just to check the museum and stuff like that and also the fjords and things like that and I also want to go to London for some reason I've never been to London and from what I see on TV it's so diverse mm. it's so cool like there's people from all over the world and yeah so Norway is first on my list and London and Hawaii for fun Mm. It's not like it's all easy because I have a Congolese passport and there's a whole oh, other dang. layer of yeah. issues to get a visa as a tourist. Yeah, but I'd like to visit those countries: Norway, London, Hawaii. <laughs> those all seem like good places to go. Um, Thank you. <laughs> hopefully, you can get there. I, obviously, I don't know the the specifics of like you know or like the limits of Congolese having a Congolese passport, but mm. hopefully. You can get there to all those places yeah. and enjoy them, you know. Thank you. As far as, you know, you pursuing your, you know, graduate studies in Japan, especially with your master's, mm-hmm. I know you said you had the scholarship. What was that scholarship called? If you don't mind uh, JICA, JICA ABE Initiative. Okay. So it's a Japanese International Corporation Agency scholarship. Mm, okay. So... I'm wondering, for people who also want to study in Japan, uh, maybe Hmm. even do graduate studies in Japan, do you have any advice for affording grad school Hmm. life in Japan? And also, Hmm. in general, do you just have any other wisdom or takeaways that you would want people to share about being in Hmm. Japan? I think if you come to study in Japan, definitely do not create a small... Uh, no matter, um, regardless of where you're coming from, don't try to create a small uh, version of your country here by only hanging out with people from your country because that will definitely lower your chance to learn the language and actually be immersed in the culture. So my first advice is try to make as many Japanese friends as possible and mm. also do not only focus on your actual studies but learn the language at the same time because... 
actually degrees, especially in the Japanese industry right now, don't really matter. When you look at the way their industry works, you don't really see Japanese people in all this high degree. Like usually the classroom is full of foreigners and mm. very few Japanese people because they don't really need to go that far to have a stable life and uh, to, to pretty much live a, a, a nice life in Japan because the system is built in the way that they are uh, as long as you have an education, you are you you can be really like a, uh, in a good position in the in any company. Mm -hmm. So learn uh, immerse yourself in the culture by making Japanese friends, no matter how uncomfortable it feels like. Learn the language at the same time you're having your degree. Do not focus only on on your degree, even if it's engineering or you're trying to be an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> like learn the bloody language. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, I'm telling you. And also, um, uh, for scholarship, there are big scholarships in Japan, like a JICA that I got. The first one is Max from the Japanese uh, Ministry of Environment, actually. Yeah. So mm -hmm. these two scholarships, uh, even if they're very competitive, if you have the right degree and you're coming from the right industry, you have big chance to to get them. So apply for the scholarship from uh, back home and even when you arrive here you can find smaller scholarship in your university you just have to check with the administration and if you cannot prepare yourself to have a part-time job while you are studying uh, it's not guaranteed that you're going to be able to afford school with your part-time job so basically mm. uh, don't there are many cases here of people who find themselves in very harsh situations because they came for school and they cannot afford it and they went into some very, uh, not weird, but unfortunate situation to try to have money. And mm. we have even a case of uh, of death from a lady uh, from Sri Lanka who came here to, to study and couldn't afford it anymore and went to English and then the English teaching and then there was a a situation in the immigration, they tried to kick her back and she died uh, in some unfortunate situation. So there are uh, uh, definitely rules in Japan that you won't be able to over to go around. They're very strict with their rules. So the mm -hmm. deadline of your school fees is the deadline. When you pass it, your name is erased from the university and you find yourself losing your visa and things. Mm. So be really prepared about your financial situation before you, you come for studies. But if you have a family that can support you, yeah, well, then you can, you can definitely make it. School here is very expensive. PhD in other countries, you are paid to do it because you're doing research, but in Japan, you have to pay for it. Mm. So the financial situation is a very, very important uh, thing to look at when you're coming for study. Yeah. Th thank you for being so um, honest about that, you know. This <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> is definitely something that people should know if they're thinking mm -hmm. of going on a similar mm -hmm. path. So, um, yeah, I appreciate all that advice. Thank you for thank sharing you. that. And my, my last question for you mm -hmm. is, you know, where can people reach you or keep up with you online if you would like them to do so? Oh, oh yes, I like, uh, like I would really love that. I, I receive a lot of questions, especially from students and people who want to do modeling. You can find me on Instagram. Basically, just shoot a DM. I always reply. 
My Instagram is crazy la, uh, crazy L-L-A-H, with mm. no space, crazy L-L-A-H. I have the same username on YouTube and, uh, what is that? TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, definitely find me there. Okay, crazy la. And then for French speakers or... Oh, Francophone my Francophone, people. they will come at me. <laughs> <laughs> for, for Francophone, find me on Instagram as well, Crazy La, and my YouTube, my Francophone YouTube is Les Rues du Japon. Mm. Uh, Les Rues du Japon. Definitely if you comment there or you shoot, uh, uh, there's no DM on YouTube. Yeah, just shoot a DM <laughs> on Instagram <laughs> and yeah, I'll always reply. Okay. <laughs> awesome. So there's Crazy La on mm-hmm. uh, Instagram and TikTok mm-hmm. and YouTube. And then for the French speakers or people who just want to hear you speak French for some reason, <laughs> there's um, Les, Les, Les Rues du Japon. Japon. Okay, yes. awesome. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for uh, <laughs> making the time at the end of your day to talk to me and mm-hmm. um, uh, tell me about your, your journey thus far. Been really <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to always share my experience with people from all over the world. I don't really get to to have this chance very much, you know. Mm. And when you contacted me by email, I was like, oh, oh my God, I feel so, so nice about this. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I'm glad I could give you the opportunity to, you know, talk about, um, you know, yourself and your experiences in this way. Glad to glad to help in that way. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, this has been so much fun. Uh, as early as it is, I I feel so energized right now. Thanks to talking oh. to you. So thanks so much. That's great. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so. You'll still hear from me when the episode's coming out, so it won't yeah, be a surprise or anything. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We'll keep in touch. And uh, I'll let you enjoy the the rest of your, um, your, I, oh, it's night, night by now. <laughs> yeah, the rest of your night. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just wish you good luck in everything that you're doing. I think you're yeah, up to so many awesome things, and I just hope things continue to go well for you. Thank you so much and good luck to you too and have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, you take care, all right, Ela? And I'll be in touch soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, y'all. There it is. Thanks to Ela for being such a wonderful guest. And I hope you like how this all turned out. For the rest of you listening, don't forget to follow this podcast at Young Gifted and Abroad on Instagram and Facebook and at YG Abroad on Twitter. And don't forget to check out guest profiles and resource lists on younggiftedandabroad.com. Also, if you enjoy what you've been hearing so far, then please continue listening to Young Gifted and Abroad wherever podcasts are. And you're welcome to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you leave ratings and reviews. And as always, if you have questions or comments to share, or if you yourself would like to be a guest on the show, then feel free to email me at younggiftedandabroad at gmail.com. So, for the next episode, next week, (laughs) episode 100, y'all, right? (laughs) The guest, uh, in true Danielle in 2022 fashion, that interview has not been recorded yet. Um, (laughs) But... If all goes according to plan, that guest will be someone I'm related to who is a current college student and who 
went on a school trip to Europe in high school. So you can look forward to hearing all about that next week. But until then, thank you so much for listening and talk to you next time.